Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. My name is Tom Galvin, and this is another episode in our special series, How Should the Army Run, or HSTAR as we like to call it. In today's episode, we're talking about talent management, and we're honored to bring back Professor Lou Yangert from the Department of Command, Leadership, and Management, and who has served on the Army's Talent Management Task Force and is currently leading the Talent Management Integrated Research Projects with the task force as a client. He has also joined us for the first episode of H-Star on the organization of the Department of Defense. So welcome back, Lou. It's great to be back, Tom. Thanks. Now, talent management is a tough business. Many of us have probably complained about how the system doesn't work or has disadvantaged us in some way. But the Army and all of Department of Defense have long recognized the challenges of placing soldiers and civilians, and we're talking three million of them, by the way, where they can best perform their assigned duties, grow professionally, be competitive for selections and promotions. It is a wicked problem, and there have been concerted efforts to make things better. So before we get into our discussion, why don't you tell us a little bit about what interested you about talent management and how you became involved in the Talent Management Task Force? Thanks, Tom. Well, uh, a number of years ago, around 2018, I was looking for something significant, some kind of service to do um, uh, for the Army or the Joint Force. And uh, I got pushed into uh, supporting the Army Talent Management Task Force that was being reinvigorated at the time. Uh, at that time, Brigadier General McGee was taking over as the task force director. And so I was uh, seconded as such to that task force for about six months. And and so I, I got interested in that regard in supporting them. Uh, and what I found was that I was interested outside of that. For some of the things that you're talking about for the current talent management efforts, I would say that we've all had our disagreements, our issues with the personnel system over the years and how we were treated, whether it was fair, whether it was rational, all of those kinds of things when it came to selection, promotion, employment, all of the kinds of things that the task force is trying to get after. Um, so. I would say in that discussion, I came to to fully support the Army's talent management efforts to go from what has been described, and I agree with the description, an industrial age strength management system where we are treating people who are lieutenant colonels and of a certain branch as if they're all the same. They have the same experience, so they must be the same. And the only differentiation we're using is their performance evaluations, for the most part, jobs they've had in performance evaluations. And given that, I, I felt, I still feel that there, it's time for a change so that we can make best use of the talents in the Army 
uh, and do what you're talking about, which is put the right people in the right jobs at the right time in their careers, and then not just once, but but routinely. So, I mean, you mentioned lieutenant colonels, but talent management is supposed to encompass the full life cycle of the personnel, correct? That's, that's a really good point. And uh, it, it was a point that General McGee made early on to the, to the task force as he brought it together. And that is that I would say that most people would agree that we, ta- we do talent management. We manage the talents of our senior population, our high performers, pretty well. We identify them because they get selected early for promotion. We identify them because they get to go to certain schools. They get selected for certain jobs. And as they move forward, they it's very clear that they're in the top 30% of their year group, in the top 10% of their year group, in the top 5% of their year group. And we manage, we've always managed those talents relatively well. Um, but there's a lot of talent in the Army outside of that five or 10% that I think we have been missing the boat on, on making the best use of their talents. Okay. So you mentioned that uh, we want to get everybody or we want to get uh, officers into the right place at the right time. What determines or what do you think has uh, been the problem with past personnel management systems in doing that? I mean, is there's the interchangeability assumption. But there is also just the general complexity of all of the places where we need to have people. No, that's that's correct. And I would say that the difference is that we have never had visibility of true talent information on our population. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look at an officer, I can see their rank, I can see their, if I'm looking at their file, I can see their rank, I can see the jobs they've had. Uh, I used to be able to see a picture now we don't do that anymore. Uh, but I can't tell. There's a number of dimensions, talent dimensions, that we would like to know about them. Uh, at, here at the War College, we talk about senior leader competencies, attributes, those kinds of things. We've identified a number of them. If you go to different studies, you can find the ones that we think are are the right ones for to determine whether someone will be successful at the strategic level. And we would so we would call those talent attributes or talent areas. In the parlance of the army, it's the knowledge, skills, and behaviors that make up uh, the way that they do business, the things that they know, the things that they can, the talents that they have. And we haven't had, still don't have, but we're striving to get visibility of those talents. First thing you have to do is determine what you're gonna what you're gonna measure. Once you've done that, then you have to uh, do some kind of an assessment. And once you've done the assessment and you have the information, now when it comes time to select someone for a job or maybe even for promotion or for schooling, now we have more than just their rank and their military occupation specialty and their, their past five OERs to look at. We have talent information, and if we can identify the talent requirements in the positions that we're trying to fill, then maybe we can match the talents of the people uh, that we are that are available to fill them with the talents that are required for the positions. And up until now, we haven't been able to do that 
because we haven't had the information. We haven't gone out and gotten it. And if we have, then we haven't made it available for anyone to look at or to use. What are some examples uh, of talents or you know, KSBs that you think are better captured now that aren't weren't captured that you think are critical to the military? Uh, I think uh, one of the things with um, with that we've identified along the way, and you and I are teaching strategic leadership course, and we talk about this. Um, we talk about uh, frame of reference development. We talk about uh, empathy, whether you call it strategic empathy or whatever you want to call it. Um, and the other one is, that, I, that comes to mind is openness. The higher you go up in rank, the more uh, there, there is a desire that you be more open to new experiences, to other possibilities, because that helps to broaden your perspective to a strategic perspective. And it's possible for some of those things for us to actually assess them. And then once you've assessed them, now you can decide what you want to do, how you want to use it. And up until now, we haven't really spent time assessing them. And I would say that we have a culture within the Army that is very comfortable identifying those kinds of attributes or behaviors or skills for developmental purposes. And we're terrified. We think it's unfair if we would actually use them to determine whether somebody should be promoted, whether somebody should get command of a battalion, whether somebody should be a general officer because performance is king. We believe that if somebody's a good performer, they can overcome uh, inadequacies in some, some skill. Or we don't really believe that those assessments are valid because this is my best performer. They must be the best. What are you talking about? They're not good enough. Those kinds of things. So, so there, there's some of the nuances, I think, with, with the issues. And there's also the speed at which people develop as well. Uh, you mentioned that uh, getting people not just to the right place, but also at the right time. And uh, this past uh, complaints about personnel systems have been that we've been so rigid about the timeframes that we assume built into the system that it takes to be ready for promotion to the next step. Um, obviously, it's one thing to be able to say that, hey, uh, you know, some people develop faster than others or whatever, but trying to systematize that into a flexible system that's ready to promote people when they're ready to do so, I would imagine that that'd be very difficult. Well, and that, that brings me to – so one of the major tenets of our current system is a, a relatively inflexible career timeline. Again, certainly in the Army, but but because of the Defense Officer Personnel Management Act of 1980, where they tried to uh, normalize those career paths across different services, um, you have in a, 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 a cohort of people who are commissioned in a certain year, they have 18 months to make first lieutenant and about four years to make captain and about 10 years to make major about 16 or so to make lieutenant colonel, about 22 to make colonel. And if they, when their time, when that time comes for them, if they're not ready because they haven't had the jobs yet that they needed or they had to develop in some other way, then they don't get promoted. And in our current system, if they don't get promoted, they don't get to stay. 
And so that's that's a thing that needs to be addressed, and that is that is the rigid career timeline. Uh, it comes out of a good place, and that is, as you said, we have a large army. We have a large military force. It's not like we we have a 50-person organization and, and, you know, if we use our talents correctly, we can make a 50-person organization look like a 1,000-person organization. Uh, we have a, a couple million people in the organization. And so uh, the idea that individual talents somehow are going to make that much of a difference is has has sort of been put to the side over time. And instead, we worried about uh, having the right number of people who are of the right quality available for promotion to the next rank. And again, that's been around 80% to major, about 70% to lieutenant colonel, about 50% of what's left to colonel. Uh, and that is so that we can fill you know, our force structure that has been structured in a way so that based on promotions, promotion percentages and historical attrition and things like that, we can expect to, to be able to have a good quality of people uh, at those ranks. But that's strength management. And it starts to drive the behavior of the system. Uh, and I'll give an example. So we have every year we commission on the order of four to 5,000 new lieutenants in the Army. We don't have jobs for four to 5,000 lieutenants. We know that. Why do we commission so many? Well, we know that over a period of about four years, a certain number of them will not stay in the Army. So there's some historical attrition. About 95% plus of those that are left that are still around will get promoted to captain, and that will give us the number of captains we need to fill captain's billets. We might actually have more captains than we need at that time. Um, but some calculations, it'll give us enough majors five or six years later so that we'll have enough majors to fill the majors billets. So we start with more lieutenants than we need so that we can have enough majors 10 years later. Uh, again, from a strength management standpoint, you have you need to have enough, right? You don't want to be short of majors or captains or lieutenant colonels. But as I said, it drives behavior. And so if, if I have excess lieutenants, then the very um, impressionable young people who are who come into the army ready to to really tear down walls and make things happen now they're waiting in line to get platoon leader jobs because there's just not enough jobs for them and so we push them off into something else and they get disillusioned and some of them decide not to stay so instead of managing that attrition we have encouraged it because of the behavior of this strength management system and we decided that a lieutenant's a lieutenant. As long as I have enough infantry lieutenants to make captain, I'm happy. And that's simplistic. But there is a feeling out there that many of the most talented lieutenants, most talented captains, don't stay to the tenure point because they're disillusioned, because they're, they're not challenged, because of a, a number of different things within our system. And I believe it starts from a place that we don't identify the most talented. We don't even know who they are. Because we're we're not that interested. We we just want to make sure we have enough of, of sufficient qual, uh, quality to make to meet the numbers. 
And we should be more interested in the talents. We could commission fewer people and and then focus on their retention. You know, make them, you know, this is why you came into the Army, to be good at these kinds of things. Let's do it. And maybe more of them will stay. And then you'll have, you'll have, you'll be able to select from that group a much higher quality than, than we're probably seeing now. Now, it also sets up a system that's uh, vulnerable to significant changes. Uh, and I'm kind of remembering back to the late 1990s when we did see, you know, with the drawdown, a significant effort to reshape the force that had the unintended consequence of significantly reducing the middle levels. And so you had issues not just with insufficient mid-level officers, but then you all it, it created conditions by which junior officers were essentially filling the gaps. And we had uh, we had different levels of expertise in jobs that they weren't well developed for. So how do we protect against those kinds of situations recurring? Well, and and I happened to to be working in the Army Desper at the time in 1996 to 98 when we were right at the end of that drawdown, and we saw some of the dynamics that you're talking about. And at that time, again, well-intentioned, trying to go from an army that was 780,000 active to one that was about 495,000, maybe 482 by the time I left, um, was a significant challenge. And some of the policies that the army put in place to to cause that drawdown, because we had we can't you can't just they decided they didn't want to show up one day and say you know give a give a letter to you know a thousand officers hey it's time for you to go. So they did it through uh, a combination of of uh, reducing accessions and recruiting on the enlisted side and voluntary incentives. And the voluntary incentives were set up in numbers so that. Uh, once those people left, if we had normal attrition that we would expect to have anyway, uh, that we would have the lower number that we were looking for. And what happened was the voluntary incentives drove higher than normal attrition. In addition to the voluntary, people left at higher numbers for a variety of reasons. But some of it was because we didn't think through what effect those policies would have on people's psyche when it came to whether they should stay in the army or not, just for normal attrition's sake. So that's that's some of the same things we're talking about here. Instead of identifying, so let's just say we wanted to keep, uh, let's say we wanted to keep a thousand infantry lieutenants. You know, by the end of that drawdown, we wanted to have a thousand. Instead of looking at our force and saying, "Here's the thousand that we want," here's the thousand. Right, because of their talents, because of their demonstrated performance and all those kinds of things, and focusing our attention on keeping them, we said, okay, we have these 4,000. At the end of it, as long as we have 1,000, we'll be okay. We'll be okay. And that's, that's the dynamic that we're talking about. But, we didn't even, we, but at that time, we didn't have a mechanism to be able to tell us who, that, who those 1,000 were. And that's some of the focus of the talent management effort at the lower ranks. Uh, you know, you said, "Hey, lieutenant colonel is not where we start. You start at lieutenants and captains, but at those at those ranks, you need to have visibility of the talent information in order to make decisions like who should we focus our efforts on 
to keep them in the army because we want to retain the best talent. Now, uh, doing that obviously depends a lot on the quality of the evaluation and the ability to really measure and present a proper picture of the performance of, of an officer. And uh, that's that's been a, a, a very common point of criticism of past management systems. What's your take on that? And what is the task force looking at to try to make that work better? So um, this is a really, a really sticky issue. And it's not just the evaluation system. I would say that the, the, the systems that are, that are toughest for, for us, us being the Army to change while we're still working. I mean, we, we can't just stop one day and then decide we're going to implement a new system. We have to implement the new system while we're executing the current system. And the, and the ones that are difficult are the evaluation system, the promotion system, and the selection system. You could also maybe say the distribution system, right? How we how we distribute the talent and how we make decisions about who's going where, but those uh, evaluation systems and and promotion systems, some of which are rooted in statute, some of which are army policy and a, a way of doing business, but they're also pretty pretty deeply embedded in in the culture and. Uh, in 2018, when General McGee had just taken over the task force, we had just changed the, the evaluation system. Within two or three years earlier, we had changed, made some changes to it. And so there was not a real stomach to say, oh, hey, we got to throw all that out and start doing something different. But some of the things that uh, are an issue with the evaluation system uh, are that, first of all, there's there's what there is some cultural bias, and I think we're trying to identify cultural bias in a number of different ways. Uh, but there's also what I would what I call bureaucratic factors that have little to do with performance and potential, which is what our evaluation system is supposed to be evaluating. If if you ask anyone, why are we doing these promotions? Well, we're, they're they're based on performance and potential, and the the bureaucratic factors that I call out are. It's possible to get uh, multiple ratings in sort of random style within a an annual what would could be an annual rating period. You could get get to a place and four four months after you start, your boss leaves, so generates a rating. Uh, five months after that, the senior rater leaves and decides to do a senior rater option, and you get another rating. And, and then something else, you know, something else happens. Maybe you get reassigned six months after that, and you get another rating. And because of the way the system is, sometimes that four-month rating doesn't give enough visibility of your, uh, you know, your performance of potential for them to do a fair rating of it. Uh, sometimes there are other the other bureaucratic factors which have to do with the senior rater profiles. Now, the big idea when I was a young lieutenant uh, was we were going to go to these uh, senior rater profiles so that we couldn't put everybody in the top. We had to had to vote about where they were going to be. But there is some there are bureaucratic things about that that cause you could be in it could be time for you to be rated. 
and your your senior writer could say, you're doing great. I love what you're doing, uh, but my profile doesn't support me putting you in the top block. I'll get you next time. And it happens all the time. Some people manage their profile pretty well. Some people actively try to manage it pretty well. And then something happens and they they get caught in, in the situation that I talked about. But when that happens, it has little to do with performance potential. It has to do with something else, a bureaucratic factor about how we do the, the ratings. And so in my mind, those are some things that, that we own, the Army, that we could change. Uh, and because other, other services, they, they, don't, they don't rate the same way we do. Some of them do all the ratings for a certain grade at, on a certain date, just like Army civilians get rated based on, you know, our, our ratings are all done at the beginning. It's, you know, all end on the 1st of December or whatever it is, right? And the same thing could be done uh, for Army officers and you get one rating a year instead of multiple ratings that, that sort of make things uh, like that. Or we could go to a, a system where the enumeration was, was, what, was what's important. So you, you have to say, you know, Galvin's number one of 25, that I rate in this that I rate in this rank or senior rate. Maybe you have the raters do it too, and then there's a mechanism so that they can't say, "Well, Galvin's number one of twenty-five," and the next one they go, "Oh, Yangert's number one of twenty-five." Can't do that either, right? You have to have some mechanism for accountability of the raters and senior raters. But I think uh, it, that gives us more information on performance of potential than our current system might. Uh, there's one other thing about the uh, performance evaluation that when it comes to talent management, that's that's an issue. And that is it doesn't give us any talent information. The talent information we were talking about before, about knowledge, skills, and, and behaviors, um, there's nowhere on that form where it says, this person has this these talents. You know, or I, if, you're, if I'm given 10 talent areas, here's where they rate in those talent areas. And I'm not sure it should be in the evaluation. But the raters and senior raters are, are a, a way to find out more talent information. It's another perspective on people's talents that we don't currently get to harvest. And we should find a way, you know, maybe at the same time they submit uh, an evaluation, they have to submit something that talks about people's talents or rates their talents. And that would be another point a data point for us to consider when it comes to making decisions about people. Yeah. Now, another thing to, about the evaluation system is that uh, what I think generates some of the consternation with it is how is it interpreted by the selection and promotion boards? And uh, to some extent, obviously, the the boards is is a very successful system in that it does a pretty good job of filtering out a massive amount of information to try to figure out who who's deserving and who falls below the line. But changes in the evaluation system have tended to be uh, criticized because of concerns over, is the board actually going to pay attention to the difference? How, what's your take on that? So uh, I, I mentioned the promotion system and, and the promotion and selection systems are are another uh, another major issue with trying to do talent management because you could 
You could do all the things that I just talked about in terms of identifying talents. And then if the promotion boards look at these evaluations, that's their primary thing that they're looking at that doesn't have talent information on them. Uh, and culturally, they say, well, performance is the, is the thing I'm looking at. Then, uh, then you've defeated the purpose of of trying to do anything, having have talent have anything to do with it, uh, and so it's it's possible that maybe we need to change the way we approach promotions. We've already changed the way we've uh, that we approach selection to battalion and brigade command to O five and O six um, CSL, um, and so that opens the door to okay, are there other are there other things? Are there other things that we own? So what's nice about selections is that they're not governed by the same laws that promotions are. Army can select people however they want to do it. And of course you want to do it well, but I'm what I'm talking about is selections for school, for ILE, selection for senior service college. All of those kinds of things um, we own. So maybe we should use talent information to make decisions about people before we put them in those positions, like we are for, for command. I think that's a, a step in the right direction. But it's also possible to structure our promotion system so that it, it and, and I don't wanna be confusing. I believe that culturally, and I think it's appropriate, that performance will always be the number one factor. We don't want to have some lieutenant colonel or colonel or general who can't perform. We, we wouldn't put up with it, nor should we. But it shouldn't be the only factor, and right now it is. So what are some of the recommendations that you're putting forth to the task force to address all this? So I, I, um, I haven't – I told you a number of things for the evaluation system – uh, that I haven't put forward to them. But there are some things within the uh, promotion and selection system that we have suggested at different times, um, some of which uh, didn't come from us, but I think are still good. And, and the biggest one is more flexibility in the, in the timeline that we talked about before. Uh, so that you, you opt, maybe you opt in only. It's time, you know, you don't get select, you know, you don't get looked at for promotion because it's time. You get that, you get looked at for promotion because you say, I think I'm ready for promotion. I'd like to be considered. Um, PME, the same way. For command, the same way. We already do it for command. Um, and then you allow, you could allow for things like career sabbaticals, uh, uh, permeability between reserve component and active component without prejudice because right now culturally if you go from active to to the United States Army Reserve and you want to come back to the active people look at you like well why did you leave must be something wrong with you that's sort of culturally the way it is and I think we can make some changes in that way that put people in a place where uh, because a reason people stay in the army, or leave the army, uh, or, or, or make certain choices within the army, we see it here at the War College, is because as they get to be 40 years old, 45 years old, things happen in their life. They have children who grow up, and they have spouses who are 
trying to establish careers. And we act as if, you know, that's all very nice. But, you know, you need to PCS three times in a in a five-year period because you're doing really well and we're promoting you and we're selecting you. And and you say, yeah, it's time. I can't do this anymore. I'm leaving. As opposed to working with them, giving them options and some flexibility so that we can use their talents and they can uh, – they can also take care of things that are really important to them. Uh, those are the kinds of things with, uh, with, the, with the career sabbaticals, for example. Um, another thing that, I, would, that I, have, I have been pushing, and there is a little bit of this going on in the, uh, in the Army, and that is a, a level of transparency. Many times... We, we experienced, and the current system you experience, things happen to you. You get selected, you get sent somewhere, you get a job that you, and you're not sure why. And it's hard to get any, you know, it's hard to really get anybody to tell you why. Uh, and more transparency is better. That's, that's the way I look at it. And I, just about everyone that I've ever talked to, if I've said, you know, if the promotion list came out and instead of just finding out that you were, congratulations, you were on the promotion list, you could know exactly where you were on the promotion list. There were 563 people promoted and you were number 402. Or maybe you were number 22. Would you like to know that? Almost everyone has said, yes, I would like to know that. But for some reason, we really are, we're worried that if we tell them, they'll make, they might make decisions. They might leave. They might decide not to stay. They might do... But that's their, those are their, their decisions. And eventually, they're going to find out that they were number 400 of 560 because they're not going to get selected for battalion or brigade command. Did they know that? Were they surprised? They made, you know, because they thought they were higher than that, but they, we didn't tell them. And we've made some strides in that area. We have what are called merit-based promotions on some portion of the promotion list is done based on the order of merit list coming out of the board, uh, but not not the entire one. So you still have the majority of that list is done by data rank, not by order of merit. Uh, we get a little bit more transparency in our, in our uh, assignment system now. What jobs, you can see all the jobs that are available out there. You can, uh, you can talk to the people, they can talk to you. There's some matching done that way. It's not a perfect system. It's the system right now everybody loves to hate the most. Uh, but a level of transparency in that, again, I believe is is the right way to go. And those are the kinds of things that I'm recommending. Well, that uh, brings us to the end of time. Uh, we welcome any suggestions you have on future episodes of How Should the Army Run. Meanwhile, you can access How the Army Runs Reference Guide and other texts on matters of Army leadership and management on the War Room site using the Reference Materials tab. Uh, Lou, thank you so much for uh, joining us today for another episode of H-Star. Uh, I'm Tom Galvin, and I'm signing off, and let's work together to make the Army all it can be. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.com dot armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.